It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. So when it comes to teachers, um, in my mind there are three different kinds of teachers. Uh, there is the teacher which is considered to be the awakener. And that is the teacher, the individual that can simply, with a look or with a touch, just wake you up. There is a teacher which is considered to be the reminder, which means that those are typically for individuals who just sort of forgot a little bit what everything was about. And that by listening to the teacher and applying what the teacher uh, shares, the person just naturally remembers what's happening, what the meaning of life is, what, why we're here, how souls become involved with nature. And then there's another kind of teacher, which is also very important, and that is simply um, the individual who shares or maintains um, instructive material. So from this teacher, you learn meditation techniques. From this teacher, you learn uh, how to live practices. They're not going to be able to just wake you up. Um, through doing what they say, of course, you will start to remember on your own, but more than likely, it won't necessarily be the kind of situation where they're sharing something, speaking philosophy um, or spiritual concepts, and you just have the sense of, oh, okay, I get that. What they're doing is they are sharing uh, the mechanics of how it's done. And we need all of these kinds of teachers, and all of these kinds of teachers exist in the world. Uh, part of the difficulty sometimes is that teachers that are the instructors and teachers which are the reminders sometimes think that they are the ones who are going to just wake you up. <laughs> so as they develop their own self-awareness, um, they'll, they'll figure that out on their own. Now, the issue though is, even with a teacher that's considered to be the awakener, the one that through a touch or through a look or through their presence, um, they can inspire in you, reveal to you sort of the truth of reality. Even though those exist, people respond to them, are awakened by them in that way but only when they've already done the preliminary work. Think about it. Otherwise, these awakeners could just walk through your local grocery store and touch people and look at them and be around them and everyone would be like, oh, I am now serene, whole, aware, awake, and I'm going to be a very kind person from this point forward. But you notice that that doesn't happen. Um, so in order to benefit from one of these teachers that are considered to be an awakener, you still have to have gotten the instruction. You still had to have been reminded of what is true. And you have to be just at that point to where all you need is just a little tap over the edge. You're not quite ready yet, but they just come along and give you the little nudge and then you see it. It's all revealed to you. So even to benefit from someone considered to be an awakener, you still have to do your own work. Um, many times, since I do have a significant um, social media presence, I get all kinds of questions like, are you enlightened? <laughs> and it makes me laugh because number one, if I was and you weren't, you wouldn't believe me. <laughs> if I wasn't and you're not, you could still think I was, right? And one book that I particularly enjoyed, uh, what was it called? Mm, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it was in the same kind of uh, genre as uh, Vasista's Yoga, it, it gives a description of one who is enlightened, of, of what that's like, what they are like. And it's wonderful. But then towards the very end of it, of that description, it says, but this is not for you to judge others 
about whether they are awake or not. This is simply for you to figure out for yourself, where are you? So it throws in this additional information such that you don't think that simply by putting someone in that cookie cutter pattern, you're going to say that person is awake, this person is awake. They say, if you can relate to this, if you understand this, if this makes sense to you, then that gives you insights into are you, are, where are you on, on that spectrum? And um, I, I found this quote a long time ago, and I had been trying and trying to remember it. And then sure enough, in the Radiance magazine, which is for the Cree initiates through CSA, which if you go through the initiation ceremony, um, you can sign up for this. Uh, Roy just happened to add this quote. This is from Sri Yukteswar. It said that Swami Sri Yukteswar emphasized total dedication to Kriya Yoga practices. According to Swami Satyananda, one of his disciples, he told them, and this is the quote from Sri Yukteswar, Listen, there is no value in blindly believing that when I touch you, you will be saved, or that a heavenly chariot will be waiting for you. Because of the Guru's attunement with ultimate reality in the disciple, or the learner, the touch helps in the blossoming of knowledge. Respecting being thankful for this blessing, you must yourself become wise and proceed to be self-realized by applying the methods of spiritual practice given by the Guru. So even Sri Yukteswar, who, you know, was able to awaken in Paramahansa Yogananda to, to help him experience that transcendent state, even he is saying, you can't blindly just depend upon someone else. You still have to do the work. And when it comes to this idea of attunement, this will come up over and over and over again. Many people think attunement means you get a picture of your teacher and you just proclaim your undying love and you meditate on that picture or you, you try to spend time with your teacher as much as possible because you have this strong sense of devotion. Um, and that can be helpful in the beginning, but the teacher doesn't want that. The teacher, the spiritual teacher, wants you to do what he or she did such that you can have the direct experience in the same way that a healthy-minded parent wants their children to grow up and get out of the house, right? That's what a, <laughs> that's what a healthy-minded parent wants. The healthy-minded parent doesn't want this kid to be living at home all the time, being dependent. Um, they want the child to be strong and able to take care of themselves. And I understand that different cultures are different. I understand that in some countries, kids can live with their folks for ever. <laughs> but that's fine as long as the kid still can take care of his or herself. And if the child goes away, the parent has their own life to live. Um, so the, the, the real authentic relationship with a spiritual teacher will be one where they encourage you to know what they know, to do what they do. Um, I recently, well, yesterday, I interviewed Ron Lindon, the senior minister for Center for Center for Spiritual Awareness here, and he's been working on a documentary um, on the Kriya Yoga lineage, which will be coming out uh, spring of 2020, according to him. So anyway, the podcast that I recorded with him, which will come out a little later, uh, was him describing how when he really started looking into who the gurus were, like really not just... Not, not just kind of taking what has been given to us, has been presented as the veneer, but really getting into who they are. He found out many of these teachers, they had stuff they had to work through. They had issues to deal with. Their life wasn't perfect. And someone said to him, what do you mean? Yogananda was lying, an autobiography of a yogi? And um, no, that, that's not the case. Many of the stories that Yogananda wrote in Autobiography of Yogi were all secondhand stories. So he was being honest in what he was sharing. Um, but he was able to go to India and go through this pilgrimage and spend time with people to do research and found out uh, interesting facts about the gurus. And I agree with this, which is one of the reasons why I've been so um, as transparent as I could about you know things that have gone on in my life in these past few years. Um, 
he said, when you get the idea, the understanding that they were people who had to do the work and they also had lives and issues to work through, the, the idea is that that is hopefully more empowering for you because then you recognize, oh, well, they were like me too. And when people would say to Yogananda, um, when, when he, they would say to Yogananda, well, of course you can do this because you're a master. And they would never listen to what he said after that, which is, <laughs> well, I'm a master because I did the work. I became a master to do this. You know? So um, always keep in mind that when we're thinking about uh, our teachers, the way that you attune to them, the real true way you attune to them, and this comes up in so many different texts, is by applying what you learn. This morning when we went through that meditation and we had that um, sense of withdrawing our awareness within and then aiming to try to hear, contemplate that own vibration, if you do that, you will be learning directly from, as it says in the Yoga Sutras, even the teachers of the ancients. So if you leave this week and you don't remember that and you don't apply it, are you remaining in tune with the teaching? <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> you just came on a nice little vacation and you were recharged and refreshed. So to attune to a guru, and this even comes up in um, Lahiri Mahasaya's, uh, I think it's called the, the Guru Gita. Um, and he keeps talking about learning from the guru. But if you read between the lines, he is not talking about a specific person. He's not. He's talking about that infinite intelligence, which uh, maybe the teacher has a better capacity to try to translate for you. But the, the focus is on always attuning to this, and he always associates that guru with meditating on, contemplating Om, the Om vibration. So we have these different kinds of teachers, and um, they can often play multiple roles. Someone who is an awakener, if they see that an individual does not yet have the capacity or the readiness to experience that clarity, then what will they do? They will just share information. And they'll say, all right, well, am I able to remind them? And then they get the sense of it. And if that's not the case, then they'll be able to say, look, quit worrying about it. You just sit down and meditate. I'll say, yes, but what about this philosophical point? I'll say, forget it. Just sit down and meditate. Because when someone simply just needs instructions in the basics, even though they might have a good mind for thinking about things, that's not going to remind them because it's just going to keep, keep them in this loop of more concepts and ideas. So there are these three different kinds of teachers. And this brings me to the idea of um, what is a meditation group or what is a meditation group gathering that is right or healthy or supportive of self-realization, God-realization, or more specifically, uh, greater spiritual awareness. And the reason I wanted to discuss this is because, number one, um, you, you may have meditation groups that you, that you go to or not. Um, number two, I've had a few people recently ask me uh, how, how to lead a meditation group. And having had many experiences in this field, seeing what works and seeing what doesn't work, and as I mentioned yesterday, remembering that Mr. Davis gave me very specific guidelines about how to run a meditation group, and that was uh, probably, what, 14 years ago. And at that time, uh, I thought, oh well, he, you know, he doesn't really, he's not serious, he can't do it that way. And then 14 years later, I recognized that if the meditation group is for self-realization and spiritual awareness, what he advised is the way to do it. So I'm going to tell you the way not to do it. And then I'm going to tell you the way to do it, just in case if you ever have the opportunity to lead a group, or if you have an opportunity to participate in a group, you can recognize whether it's actually going to be beneficial for you. So the basics, this is it. Um, a meditation group where the people come together quietly. They show up, they sit down. The leader of the group takes them through maybe one or two techniques, if it's a guided meditation. 
Now, if the people already know how to meditate, then you don't have to say anything. You just sit there, they sit there, you let them meditate however they're inspired. But if, if they need guidance, then you pick one or two techniques, say, for example, from um, Kriya Yoga, Continuing the Lineage of Enlightenment, or the book Kriya Yoga Vichara. There is uh, chanting through the chakras, um, very basic breath awareness, very simple mantra. You pick one or two of those. And once they sit down, you instruct them on how to do it. All right, we're going to chant through the chakras. You can read how to do that. And then you say it out loud. You take them through the process. Once you've taken them through the process, you sit quietly. You meditate. Then maybe 10 to 15 minutes later, give them time to be in the silence. Give them time to experience it. Most meditation groups should probably be around 45 minutes to a half hour. Um, then you say, all right, we're going to refresh our practice with another technique. And then maybe use simple mantra. Now we're going to meditate on the breath. On the inhale, we hear the mantra, the sound, so resonating within us. On the exhale, we hear hum resonating within us. And we let this be our anchor. We let this be our focus to sink our attention in inward for the duration of our meditation. You might remind them one more time how it's done. And then sit quietly. You continue to do the process personally. Don't worry about what they're doing. And then when the time comes, you can say, let's chant Om audibly once, and then encourage everyone to leave silently. That is the best way to participate in a meditation group, to run a meditation group. Um, if you're participating in a group, it doesn't have to follow that exact guideline, but the key is the people show up silently. They meditate together. They leave silently. Yeah, but I really want to get to know these people. They share a similar interest with me. I would like to be friends. I need community. If you need a community, go to a church. If you need a community, join a club. Why do I say it like this? Because when you get a group of people together that are clear on their purpose and their intention is to abide in the radiant purity of their being or abide in a pure conscious state and they mean it and that's really what they want. When you get that group together and that happens, it is then true that the whole group benefits. It makes it much easier for everyone to access that state. If you get a group together where one or two people, that's their goal, and eight people are nodding off, they don't know what they're doing, um, they're worried about something, they're thinking about these things, they're thinking, well, I hope there's tea and coffee and you know, uh, cookies afterwards. Well, what happens, then you have a, a fragmented consciousness, right? Just like internally you want to be aligned and, and, and purposeful and, and focused. Well, when you're in a group like that, you want everyone to be on the same page because that will, up, that will truly uplift the situation in the group. And if you think about it, imagine when you've been in not even meditation groups, just groups of people. Don't you tend to actually start feeling and thinking like the people that you're around just subtly? Maybe you've been in a group and you come away and you're like, wow, I feel kind of anxious or a little tweaked in some way because that's sort of the mentality of the group. But if you're with a group of people that are calm, clear, serene, it is amazing what kind of experience the whole group can have. But there has to be that same kind of uh, solidarity. Or have you ever been in a meeting where you're really trying to figure out a problem and someone's over there watching the game? <laughs> or someone's on their phone, they don't even care. What do you think? Eh, whatever. Like the, that, that quality of, of the group becomes dispersed. So for self-realization and spiritual awareness, the individuals need to be very clear on what that is about. And if they know we're not here to socialize, then that is why they will come. You may never find a group like that, <laughs> but that is okay because you have it within yourself. 
when I first started uh, teaching in, in Asheville, um, I don't know how many times I would schedule meditation groups or teaching sessions, and I'm there just by myself. I don't know how many times I would start something and you know the initial, ooh, it's a Kriya Yoga group, this is wonderful, it's full. And I do it just like I said. Next time, three people show up. Those three people come back again, hoping I'm just kidding. <laughs> Next time, two people show up. But what I found is, is that by not worrying about that, but as a meditation group leader instructor, just staying, I'm just there from my, I'm just there to hold the space. And if no one shows up, I'm just meditating as I would at home. What I found was, is if a, if if a dedicated teacher can persist and hold that vision and hold that that kind of uh, focus in time that group that was once 35 that went down to three then down to two and maybe just you for three weeks um, eventually starts to one or two people come in that think well this is really what I want and then a few more people come in well, this is what I'm looking for and then more people come in. So by holding that space of this is what the purpose is, this is what we're doing, you weed out all the individuals that show up and say, well, how many people come here? You know, that's the question that they ask. And that always bothered me because you know they're not coming there to learn meditation. They're coming there because they want a community, which please understand, I underst I'm not saying that there's a problem with wanting community. Being involved in a community helps you live longer. It makes you happier. It allows you to feel more joyous and sharing. But the yogic path is not about this world. It's not about this world. When uh, last week the, the idea came up and it popped up again today as I was eating breakfast, uh, when I was thinking about the meditation group idea, um, you know, when, when people come in and uh, they don't want to just be quiet, but that is the yogic path, to be quiet. And you try to say, no, this is what we're doing. They say, well, you know, that group's never going to go anywhere because you're not being friendly. It's not about being friendly. It's about releasing your addiction to external circumstances. When people want a big group where there's lots of people for the sake of there being lots of people there or for having a community, they are still trying to define their spirituality through others. When people are showing up and they know we're holding this space together and we're going to mutually benefit from this deeper level beyond the personality, I don't care what Joe's doing afterwards, I don't care what's happening tomorrow, I know that this person is, is, is focused on clarity. I am focused on clarity. We're going to meet there and that will amplify it. And then afterwards we go our separate ways into our roles in the world, whatever they are. That starts to do what the yogic path is meant to do, which is break down even further that addiction to personality, to break down that addiction to feeling a sense of contentment and clarity without the world's support. Do you follow what I'm saying? Okay. So, for you, while I personally recommend that you simply meditate alone on your own, in the same way that Mr. Davis spoke about in the, the video that we watched last night, if there are groups to participate in, this is how I would advise that you determine if it is a group worth participating in. Um, maybe you go to the group and it's a mostly silent group, and you think this is it. But then you recognize that half the people are snoring. That is another key indicator that they are not there. They're taking a nap. It's not a nap group. <laughs> it's not nap time. And if you yourself are inspired to support this work in your own community, not because you want to be seen as a meditation teacher, not because you think you're going to change anyone's lives, not because you want to get involved in a group, but because it, deep down you feel it is necessary to provide space for people. You know, everything I've, I've done with, with, with teaching and doing online trainings and things, um, it is because, it's hard to explain, but there's a sense of responsibility that someone has to do it. 
that's what it feels like. Um, that is why, you know, after Mr. Davis passed, even though I discussed with him about um, letting go of astrology and focusing primarily on uh, meditation, when he passed, all of a sudden, there is this gravity that, all right, well, now we have to do this. He's not around anymore in, in form. So now it's up to us to continue this lineage of enlightenment in the world. And so it, it's about a sense of duty. And by duty, I don't mean like a heavy responsibility, like, oh, you mean I've got to pay my child support? N not like that. <clears throat> I mean, just a sense of, yeah, this is, this is what, this, is, this needs to be here somehow. You understand? If you are not inspired to have, to be any kind of meditation leader or teacher, that's also perfectly fine because not everyone has that role and you should never force yourself into that role just because you think uh, it's going to save the world or it's the right thing to do. The people who know that is their role, just do it. They don't doubt it. They don't deliberate on it. They don't have any other idea. It just is what happens. But your role then is to simply embody this clarity within your life on your own because that will go into the world and that will benefit the people around you silently. It will be like a silent blessing. And that, that helps to uh, uplift and change consciousness on an impersonal level, on an impersonal level. There's a reason that over the last hundred years, you can say, hey, do you know what meditation is? And probably 80% of the people in the world, I'm going to guess that's probably an exaggeration, but a lot more than there used to be, um, will know what it is. Whereas 100 years ago, if you brought that up, they might look it up in the dictionary, but they, don't, they didn't have a sense of what it was. It's because there are more and more people who are doing it on their own, which allows the impersonal consciousness, it allows it to kind of pop through easier when someone does finally develop an interest in it. So you doing your own little work, what you consider to be little work, is actually pretty big. But it's impersonal. You always got to think about it as though it's impersonal. <clears throat> so remember, there are these three different kinds of teachers. And to benefit, you can benefit from someone who, who has instruction, who gives instruction. You can benefit from someone who reminds you. And in time, you can benefit from someone who simply awakens you. Um, the word guru, it means teacher. So any, anyone who is a teacher is essentially a guru. Any kind, of, any kind of teacher. But there's another interesting word for guru, or not word, there's another interesting sort of connotation for guru. It means heavy. It's heavy. And so oftentimes the role of the guru, while the instruction is there, the role is simply to be able to anchor you. Those teachings, that experience helps you stay centered no matter what is going on. So sometimes to be a guru or a teacher is to simply be that kind of anchor for someone, which is why uh, even, a, even a good meditation group can be an anchor for someone. They know, and, and even your meditation time at home is an anchor, so that's also a guru. Uh, it, it allows the person to know, okay, there's this place I can go where we are all in understanding that experiencing a clear awareness, spiritual awareness, um, is beneficial for, well, it's just beneficial. So remember, the, the guru is an anchor. The guru is heavy. The guru keeps you keeps you in the right place in a way. All of, as far as I know, all of the teachers in the lineage had students that they ordained and authorized to teach Kriya Yoga. Even Yogananda did that. He authorized and ordained Roy Eugene Davis, um, the fellow in that picture right there, Oliver Black. Uh, he authorized and ordained Oliver Black to teach Kriya Yoga. Um, I think Kriyananda as well, Donald Walters from Ananda. And I remember Mr. Davis telling me a story one time um, where there was a, a self-realization fellowship member who used to, I think, drove Yogananda around. And Yogananda told this person, you know, you should, 
you should be sharing doing Kriya initiations with people if they're if they're sincere if they're sincere and she questioned him because that didn't seem to be the general idea from the organization and what I heard was that Yogananda shot back and said well are you following me or are you following an organization um, so even Yogananda had students Oliver Black had students I recently did a podcast with um, Roy Thibodeau who is a student of Oliver Black. Uh, he teaches, I think, in the Michigan area. Um, Sri Yukteswar had other students than Yogananda. There's actually a organization in Florida that was part of the lineage from Sri Yukteswar to another student. So anyway, if you do a little bit of research, you'll recognize that there are multiple avenues to learn Kriya Yoga. And as Mr. Davis had said, these techniques, they're not secret. You can, well, you can find them in my book, obviously, but you can find them in just people who have written about these elsewhere as well. So they're not secret. And that's always a fascinating thing because the true secret behind these techniques isn't that someone says, don't talk about them with someone else. The secret is that you figure out how to work them. That's the secret, because too many people learn the techniques and they never actually do it well enough or, or long enough to re recognize, oh, <laughs> this works really well. So it's almost like that, that is one of the reasons why when it came to teaching these things, um, I became very okay with just doing a video on the internet about these are the techniques, right, in a book, these are the techniques, because I know that the people who really are going to benefit from it are going to figure it out. They're going to work it, as Mr. Davis would tell me. He'd said, look, says so the techniques work, but you got to work the techniques. That's what how he spoke uh, about these things. So you can learn you can learn these processes anywhere, and if you're dedicated enough, that own vibration is universal. It's not just going to say I will only show up if you participate in initiations through this one lineage. It is accessible to anyone anywhere. Maybe you've gone to churches. I remember being a kid and going. I was Catholic going into a Catholic church when no one else was there, and I could hear that sound. Do you know what sound I'm talking about? Okay. I, I didn't know what it was when I was, you know, eight years old, a little Catholic boy, but w once it was revealed to me, it's like, I've been hearing that in churches, out in the woods, in, in quiet places my entire life. If you just listen to it, it, it does the work. Find a path that you can see yourself staying aligned with and true to way into the future. And as I mentioned, when I first met Mr. Davis, I had no questions about it. When I'd read Autobiography of a Yogi, it was probably about six or seven months before I came down to CSA, the woman who, who gave it to me, she was a yoga instructor of the class I went to. And after I read it, I thought, oh, well, she practices that, so she must be able to initiate me. And she said, no, you either have to go to California, SRF, or you have to go to CSA, because Roy is a student of um, Yogananda's. At that time, I hadn't traveled very far, so California seemed like a long ways away. I thought, well, I can make an eight-hour drive. And as soon as I showed up here, that was it. There was no other thoughts about, well, maybe SRF has it, or maybe Ananda has it, or maybe one of these other teachers, maybe they really have the spiel, um, the real information. There was just a no, this is the right place. I knew that Mr. Davis, for me, would play that role of that anchor. And he has played that role of that anchor. Um, because even though I was not able to keep my hair short and my face shaved like he preferred <laughs> and, and not get tattoos even though I was not able to do that the other things in my life about keeping my life organized simple giving my time and attention to meditation focus and self-study by interacting with him I had that anchor and it's, it's still there uh, Mr. Davis talked about attunement last night and how Yogananda had said uh, to someone, I, I like it when you understand what I say, but I like it even better when I don't have to say it. So many times I would write emails to Mr. Davis 
way back. And I would simply sit down and meditate after I sent that email. And whatever I was curious about would just, oh, okay, I get that, in meditation. I'd sit down and meditate afterwards. And then I'd go check my email, and sure enough, he had responded with the response of what, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's it. So many times I had been here at CSA, and something was going on in my life, and it, I hadn't said anything to him. I hadn't even met with him yet. And in his talk, he would just share something that would speak directly to what was going on. Um, so that, that's that kind of attunement that you have. And you can also get that kind of attunement by a very simple method of you're, you're in your life and you're doing something, and you have an option, you have a choice. And not to pull out the what would Jesus do kind of stuff, but you ask yourself, well, what would one of my spiritual mentors do in this situation? And most of the time, you know what they would do, right? I mean, if you really, if you had a serious question in your life, and it was confusing, you know, everyone giving you different, different viewpoints and saying you should do this, you should do that. If you stopped and you said, if you knew Roy well enough, or even Yogananda well enough, and you asked, well, what would they do in this? Don't you think you would probably come up with the right answer? Because they're pretty clear about how to live your life, aren't they? So by doing that, just simply doing that, you might not want to, <laughs> but by simply doing that, you eventually start to see the benefit of maintaining that kind of attunement. And then you know what they know, you experience what they experience, and who knows? Maybe your presence in someone's life, your, you just simply being a good role model in that regard, will also inspire them to stay focused, to live a better life, to be more responsible, to grow up spiritually, essentially. So this is how you can think about being attuned to this teaching, to this tradition. It's okay if you need to make it personal in the beginning. When I first met with Mr. Davis, I always thought he was reading my mind. I, I would always be slightly terrified about uh, when he'd say, you know, meet me at the chalet after the talk or whatever, and he'd pour tea, and I'd be sitting there trying my best not to think about anything. <laughs> Because I knew that once, you know, a little thing popped in my mind, he'd follow that little route down the rabbit hole to whatever weird stuff was in, inside. So for many years, I was just... And, until the day, until the day I, I was walking up the hill to the... was staying in the, the top guest house up there. And he pulled in to the chalet. And he was getting out of his car, and I thought, I just got to tell him. So I said, you know, you really scare me. And he went, boo! <laughs> and then he just walked away. And then after that, it didn't bother me anymore. I just thought, no, I'm just there to be in his presence. And I remember when, um, we didn't always meet at the chalet. Many times, uh, the greenhouse, usually the greenhouse, sometimes these other houses, when we would come, uh, when there was not a retreat going on, it was just like a, show up and hang out and meditate and have a private for ourselves retreat. He would meet with me um, and Melissa and we'd make him tea and he would never drink all of his tea. So I would wait until he left and I would make sure I would grab that teacup <laughs> and I'd drink it down <laughs> just in case there was anything there. And one, <laughs> and one other time <laughs> One other time, yeah. <laughs> One other time, when I was a massage therapist, the last time I came down, he had just said, "You know, I've never had a massage before." And uh, he asked me, "He's like, well, yeah, let me just see what it's like. Would you would you do a massage?" And I'm <laughs> never had a massage before. He didn't ask Melissa. Melissa was a massage therapist too, but he was always appropriate, so he knew, you know. Let's keep it male to male. We don't want any kind of potential <laughs> weird thoughts about anything. So he, he asked me to do it, which Melissa probably would have been the better candidate because she was better at it. Um, so I brought my table, set it up, and he got on the table. And I swear I did an hour and a half massage on him. I swear I did. And I looked at the clock. It had only been a half an hour. I was so... <laughs> 
I was so nervous that I just zipped through it all, okay, flip over. And he never had one before, so maybe he didn't have anything to compare it to. And he got I said, well, that was, that was nice. I, you know, I feel good. And Melissa's like, you're done? That was only a half hour. <laughs> and then, of course, being the weirdo I was, uh, after he left, um, I, I, I was, you know, folding up the sheets. I was like, where, where his head was, like, do you leave any hairs that I, can, that I can take and put on my altar? So I understand. I've been that weirdo. Um, but as the years went on, I, I outgrew that. <laughs> uh, yeah. <clears throat> but when I would meet with him, it was always very... We just had tea, and he would just talk to us, um, and he'd tell stories. And, you know, we'd we'd spend about an hour, an hour and a half together, and sometimes if I was here by myself, he would invite me down to the office to have lunch with them, and then, you know, I'd, I'd sit there and talk with them a little bit longer. And it was when we had the meditation center in Asheville, and he'd say things like. Uh, it's really good to be innovative. Like he said on the video, you heard him say that last night, right? How he was innovative in certain ways. It's good to be responsible and, and, and consistent, but innovative. In my mind, I heard, be innovative. So it was the probably the third or fourth month of the retreat center in Asheville, and I thought, well, I want to be innovative. Uh, I know Roy has said, this is how you do the program. You, know, you, you meditate this time every Tuesday and Tuesday, you have maybe a discussion on the Yoga Sutras. Thursday, you do another meditation. And Sunday, a uh, little 20-minute talk with the meditation. That's what you do. Do that consistently. I eventually talked him into doing a kirtan because in Asheville, you got to do something. Other. No one, I hate to say it, but he, he wanted me to be suit and tie, straight up business. And I said, you know, I live in Asheville, right? <laughs> but in, anyway, I did it. But I heard, be innovative. And so I thought, well, I'm going to schedule like a Bhagavad Gita or Yoga Sutras discussion before the, um, the talk on Sundays for people who want to show up early and just really hit it hard. So I did that a few times. And I came back down and he's like, did I say you could do a... <laughs> A discussion before, and I'm thinking I'm being innovative, and I'm not even being innovative in a in an outlandish way. So anyway, it, it was interesting. Sometimes there'd be those discussions, and I would misunderstand what he was saying, but then he would correct me, and I was open to that. There are many things I resisted, but as the years went by, I started to recognize why he said and did what he did, and the the. The problems that I had early on, uh, that I, it was because I thought I knew how it should be done. Really, that's what it came down to. I, who had only been at this for about five years, um, thought that someone who'd been at it for 50 years, I thought I knew better than that person. And that is one of the reasons why there is this student-teacher relationship. <coughs> Because if you have a teacher and you can listen to what they say, you can miss many of the mistakes they made. And you can make greater progress because you're not just trying to... You can figure it out on your own. I know you can. Anyone can. But you're, you're not going to make the same mistakes. Just like some, my cousin, he taught himself to play guitar. He is the most amazing guitar player I have ever heard. He was a natural at it. I tried to teach myself to play guitar, and I eventually did, but it helped me to actually have someone to give me specifics about how it's done, because I did not have that natural uh, inclination. So the, the, the value of a teacher-student relationship is recognizing, hopefully, that your teacher is saying things, not just to hear themselves talk, but because maybe... If you listen to it, you will save yourself a lot of trouble. Yogananda used to say, I think I've got the ratio right, that once you commit to the spiritual path, whether that be initiation or just you decide that you're committed, or you find a teacher and commit to that teacher and that teaching, he would say that when that happens, 
God takes away 50% of your karma, right there. The guru then takes away 25% of your karma. And then you have the remaining 25% to work out on your own. Now, you can make that as esoteric and mystical as possible, but really, if you follow the teaching, you are less likely to do things that get you in trouble, aren't you? <laughs> You're less likely to experience suffering and pain. And then the rest of it, well, you got to work that out in your head, that 25%. So this is the role of the spiritual path and the teaching and how you need to kind of be in your mind engaged in it. You all right now probably have more consistent training than most people who ever get initiated. <laughs> because you've been participating in this for what? 10 months now? It's October 1st. You've been listening to at least 27, maybe more hours of information, contemplating throughout the week, already doing the practices. So if you've been doing that, you are ready, meaning mechanically ready. If inside you have doubt or you're not sure or you want to go get initiated somewhere else, well, don't do it. Just don't do it. Um, but if, if you feel, no, this is it. This is right. I have no, no question about it. Just like when, I, um, you know, when, I, when I've met a friend. I've never had a friend where it took me a while to figure out, are they going to be my friend? I just met them. No, we're going to be friends. There's just a knowing there. So if you have a knowing, then you don't have to ask. We'll just do it. What should we bring? Okay, so with the initiation, there's a basket there. Uh, usually I'll take this table, or Roy would take this table and set it right here. You bring a fruit, a flower, and your donation. Now, I make it easy for you, because I go to Ingalls, and I get a bunch of flowers, and I get some fruit, and I stick it on the table out there. So on your way in, you just grab a fruit, and you grab a flower. All you got to do is bring your donation. Um, the fruit symbolizes that you are releasing the fruits of your karma. You're now taking seriously the Bhagavad Gita's assertion that you are entitled to action only, not the fruits of your action. So the fruit represents you are releasing your karma. The flower represents your devotion to the path, your commitment to the path. The donation, while it helps to keep the lights on, um, what it represents uh, isn't that you're going to sink all of your finances into a spiritual organization. Um, what it represents is that you are now confirming that all of your resources are going towards your self-realization path. It doesn't mean you support organizations that support you, but that means you buy healthy foods. You spend your money on, um, well, I don't know what you spend your money on, but all of your resources are dedicated to awakening, nothing else. Your, your resources are dedicated to awakening. So the choices you make, how to make money, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, you organize things such that it is dedicated to your awakening process. That is what the donation represents. So you'll come in, you'll sit. Um, we will meditate because we'll meditate from 7 to 8 like always. You will have grabbed a fruit and a flower, brought it with you. You will have your donation uh, in an envelope. You can put it in an envelope there. And you want to make the donations out to Center for Spiritual Awareness. That way, if you live in the U.S., it's a tax-deductible donation. And then they take care of it from there. We'll meditate. Then someone will turn the lights on. Um, I will go through the Kriya initiation the, the three techniques, which you should already know, Life Force Arousal, Kriya Pranayama, and Jodi Mudra. Anyone not know these yet? Great. That's, that's the point. Um, so you all know them, but we'll, we'll review them. Once we review them, then we have the blessing part of the ceremony, where you'll just kind of line up here. You'll put your donation in the basket, you'll, one at a time. You'll put your fruit and your flower on the table, and then I'll be standing here. I'll just take your hand and put my other hand usually on your head, sometimes on the back of your neck, but most of the time on your head. And in that moment, in my experience, it's not Ryan doing anything. I'm, I was ordained and initiated to be a representative of this teaching. So in that moment, it is my, in my head, I am being as clear of a vessel as possible for that 
awareness to do whatever it takes such that you're starting this new beginning with all that you need, with all that you need. That lasts maybe five to 10 seconds. And then you go around and you sit down. Once everyone goes through that process, then we practice the techniques together and we meditate. And then we go about our day. That's it. And again, the whole idea is that with initiation, it is a new beginning. And the metaphor or analogy I always use, it's like someone who wants to start a business. And they happen to have a benefactor who has billions of dollars. And they have this great business idea, but they don't have any money. So they go to the benefactor, and the benefactor says, all right, well, I will loan you $600,000. And that is like the initiation, where that blessing is supposed to be, now you are empowered in your meditation process, so you have to use that wisely, invest it, take care of it, nourish it, nurture it, such that it grows into a business which is self-sustaining, such that, spiritually speaking, you grow into a being that is spiritually self-sustaining. You don't want to be like the people that think they always have to come back and get more and get more. It's okay to participate in multiple initiations. I can't even count how many I've gone through. Um, but the, the, the real issue is that there is a sharing. A, it's like giving you a boost such that you can take it from there and, and cultivate that within your life. That is what the initiation is really about. So you don't really need to bring much of anything. Uh, when and what time is it scheduled? Uh, Thursday morning. So Thursday... We'll do the meditation 7 to 8, and then right after that we do the initiation process. So 8 o'clock on Thursday morning is when the official process occurs. In Yoga Vichara, you mm -hmm. say that during initiation your spiritual debts are paid. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Well, again, that, that's going back to that idea of it's like at that moment, um, the theory of this, this quality of consciousness flowing through, because the People who experience a, 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 a true guru or self-realized consciousness are clear. There's no karma there. They're not experiencing karma. Their bodies may be experiencing karma, but they themselves are not experiencing karma. So when you go through that process, um, that attunement, that connection, it's giving you that, that glimpse, that possibility, that um, potential to accept that. And when you can accept that, then whatever karmas can fall away. So that's the best way I can describe it. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, good. Other questions? Well, did you know, Ryan? You probably do. I doubt it. <laughs> this episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.